Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. biggest lesson in any of this and in life is like if you know where you want to go like you have to tell everybody everybody knows where you're going generally they will like help you get there hey everyone i'm amy devers and this is clever today i'm talking to kathy bailey creative director of heath ceramics Kathy grew up in New Jersey, deeply influenced by the technological innovation and optimism emanating from Bell Labs, where her father worked. She studied industrial design at Syracuse University and founded San Francisco-based product design consultancy, One & Co. Then around 2003, she and her husband, Robin, were looking for their next creative endeavor when they stumbled upon a struggling small-scale pottery in Sausalito, California. Heath Ceramics was originally founded in 1948 by ceramicist Edith Heath and her husband Brian. The pieces are and have always been handcrafted in Northern California and beloved for their durable and timeless modern simplicity. The brand flourished during the mid-century but then fell on hard times as the founding couple aged and consumerism shifted towards the fast, cheap, and mass-produced. That's when Kathy and Robin entered the equation, and since that day in 2003 have lovingly stewarded Heath Ceramics into modern times, without sacrificing the integrity and heritage that make the pieces and the brand so deeply lovable. Let's get the story from Kathy. I'm Catherine Bailey, and I live in Sausalito, California, and I work in Sausalito and also in San Francisco. I'm a designer, and I think I'm a, a guider of creative ideas, and I do this because I enjoy creating beautiful things that I feel like are worth having. I'm also good at understanding what needs to be done to turn that into business, so I'm the owner, along with my husband and creative director of Heath Ceramics. What an amazing story that is. And we're going to get the whole story from you. But before we get to Heath, I always like to understand, like, how you got to be Kathy. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Tell me about your family and the kinds of things that fascinated you. So I grew up in Homedale, New Jersey, which is a, it's a suburban town about 45 minutes outside of New York City. And I always felt like growing up in New Jersey, like around that area, everything was defined by its distance from Manhattan or its exit on the parkway or something. It, like there wasn't like a lot of there there other than that. And we were there because 
my parents um, came from Indiana and my dad got a job and moved out um, to New Jersey to work at Bell Labs. And Bell Labs in uh, that time was like this really kind of important technology research center. Like now I think of it as kind of a mythical place because it was such a, it, it was just iconic kind of place at that point in time. And what was interesting for me is the place, the physical place was like, is like a really big memory for me. It was this, the place where my dad worked was a, was a Eros Saarinen building mm. and it was gigantic. It was like 2 million square feet. And it was like, it was kind of like the Apple park of today, I think. And it has a huge memory in my mind of being this like immense, important place that felt really important. And my dad worked there, which was really cool. Yeah, it was kind of fascinating to me. And as someone who's grown up to really be interested in spaces and how they make you feel like that's kind of, I think, where it all started is this kind of incredible building. But um, I used to go there a lot when I when I was little and the entire basement was filled with a computer that processed like on punch cards. So my dad would bring those home for me to make things with and play with. And it would just like it was a very different time. But But it does sound like sort of the laboratory, the epicenter of evolution of like what was going to happen to the built world was being thought of and figured out right there in that Saranen building. It literally was like all the a lot of the basis for where we are today in technology was started there, like all the wireless technology, like the programming systems, the transistor was invented that, in that building. And there were like many Nobel Prizes that came out of the work going on there. So, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but it did feel important because of the structure and kind of what it felt like there. So when I look back and you see where it's all gone, it's, it's really kind of fascinating still in the basement. There was like this little like area where they had products that like how the technology was working on into products. And it was just, you know, mind blowing. It was like looking at the future and there was um, something called a picture phone, which when you think that, you know, I grew up thinking that that was like this fantasy future and they had one. And at the moment it was like, it's just the context and perspective that that gives you now, I think is super fascinating. But yeah, so. um, And I'm I'm thinking as a child too, like not knowing exactly where it would all lead, but knowing that there's this incredible generative energy coming out of that place where your dad works and you kind of have a you're picking up on that energy and you have a window into it, it must have given you just this incredibly expansive view of the future. Yeah, it it was super optimistic. I think yeah. I, I look back and I grew up in this very idealistic and the future was, was filled with opportunity and it was all very positive. And it was very around me. Everything was very science-based. I mean, I remember there was a a kid in my class and his dad won the um, Nobel Prize while we were in school together. And like he lived down the street, right? And you knew even when you're a kid, you're like, oh yeah, no, that's big, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I grew up like with all this science around me and that was my dad's world. It was a math science kind of world, but that really wasn't me. Like I, I, from the very beginning was like not inept at it, but it didn't feel like my thing. And my mom was a um, speech therapist and a a teacher, but she stayed at home with us until my 
younger sister went to school and I was already in in high school at that point. So yeah, it it was just this really like optimistic kind of childhood in this suburban place with science and the future like at the center of it. Those are my memories of that time of it feeling really optimistic and everything felt very positive. I think even going through, I went to public school there and it was like, it was, it was a very good safe place where the future was bright. And, you know, we were kind of, we had gotten through most of the problems. Um, most of the problems in the world were like in the past and we were setting out in this like new new age of optimism. Then I got to college and I was like, oh, actually. <laughs> well, yes, college tends to open your eyes in that way to all the discord that needs fixing. But you said that science yeah. kind of wasn't your thing, but your dad was bringing home these punch cards for you to make things out of. How were you finding and expressing your creativity in your adolescence? Yeah, I, I think I always, always, always liked to make stuff, you know, just kind of as kids do, but I was really persistent in it. So yeah, I was, I was like, bring me more punch cards. I have more ideas. There's more things to build. And then um, as I got a little older, I think, you know, there was, I was into all kinds of different stuff, but nothing like really deeply. When I was a teenager, I took photography. I had a little dark room at home. I could make my own photographs. I liked to paint. I like to draw and and yet like there wasn't anything where it was like oh this is this is my future it just was a comfortable spot but I do remember really clearly that like my happy place while I was going through high school was in was in art class and in art room also maybe it was because everything like the the level of math science achievement around me was so high and I was like yeah that's real I'm not going to compete with that but in art class and in that environment, it felt inspiring. And I felt like that was that was kind of more my world. And then um, but I don't think I had like so much self-confidence around it. Nobody um, except my art teacher who was like, no, no, this is you're really good at this. This is what you should do. And that just, you know, that person in my life was really significant. She's the one who I think my parents were like, you know, they're busy and I had a brother and sister and their stuff was going on. And it, but this art teacher was just, you know, when I look back, so instrumental. And she really was um, encouraging me to try a lot of different media and, you know, just like super positive. And she found me this summer design program my junior year. And this summer after my junior year, I, I took her advice and I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, which, you know, when you're like 16 or something like that, it was kind of a big thing. And I went there for the summer was like a month and I this program was just you know it's hitting me exactly the right moment when I was like being forced to think about what you're going to do next but I got to experience um, like a bunch of different majors in a college environment with professors and it was just that makes it more um, concrete doesn't it you, when it you can see the concrete and I remember it all really clearly I took graphic design I took computer graphics which is really funny because the mouse hadn't been invented mm -hmm. yet so like doing computer graphics on the keyboard you know illustration and industrial design which I wasn't sure what it was yet but I um in that summer taking those courses you know I got into that class and I felt like oh this is how my brain works. Like, this is super exciting because 
it's creative and I get to draw and, and I get to kind of make stuff, but I'm solving problems and I like that. And so in contrast of that, and then going to an illustration class where I was like, yes, my talent in drawing is there better than some people, but there are just so, there was so much talent around me that didn't feel, it didn't feel like, again, it was like, you know, my natural path. So I've always really dug the challenge of solving problems and applying my creativity to that. But when it comes to like pure expression, like through illustration or painting, I can't channel my energy that way. Right. And for some people, it it's natural, right? It flows yeah. out. Mm-hmm. And then my brain was really much happier in this like solving the problem in a creative way yeah can i just go back for a second that art teacher that found you this program and um gave you that validation was this at a public school it was at a public school man three cheers for art teachers i've heard so many stories where just that positive and reinforcement and that window into having their creativity validated and their their perspective validated in that way has led people to go on to do amazing things. And I just, yeah, I cannot imagine if that didn't happen, what my path would have been at the time. It just felt like that's what happens in school, right? You connect with teacher, but if that wasn't there, I don't know. Exactly. Which is why I just want to make one more plea that we need public, we need art in public schools. We, we need it for the health of humanity. Yeah. And I think even, you know, I think of the amount of people in that art class, it, it was like home for, you know, not everybody was going into a career, but it, it, it felt like this really kind of safe place where people could put their their head and their heart in, in, in a really supportive environment that was very different than going to your academic classes. And, you know, for some people, it was also the shop classes. I remember there was like this amazing shop where there was like people taking apart cars and putting them back together. And there was a lot of options beyond the hardcore academic stuff. There is a lot, I think, of synergy. I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, but when you when you engage your hands and your mind and your creativity all in this same activity, there are a lot of things that get unlocked. And it can be expression, it can be problem solving, it can be a kind of rhythm that makes you feel kind of in harmony with the world. But when you're just sitting there sort of trying to digest information through your brain, those doors don't always get unlocked. You're not moving your body in synchronicity with all of that information. You're not feeling the materials around you and kind of learning how the world works. And yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Like when you get your hands working, your mind can go places that it would not otherwise. Agreed. Um, well, I'm glad that you had a public school that had shop classes and art classes because we got Kathy Bailey out of it. And Kathy Bailey decided to study industrial design at Syracuse. After that summer program, I guess that sort of helped you understand what could be your future. Is that how you? It was like, it was so clear. I came home and I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing now. Like, that was easy. Wow. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it was really that easy. I thought, okay, so industrial design, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And um, it felt, just felt like a good fit. And I've had so much confidence after like, yep, I sat in a, I sat in a class with a real college professor and I did the work and I loved it. And so great, let's do it. <laughs> and then I was going to go to Carnegie Mellon, but I was, I have this real like practical side that 
these practical voices in my head that kind of, and maybe it was my parents too, but I was like, I applied to um, other schools that were art schools like Pratt or, and, um, and Syracuse, Carnegie Mellon, and I don't remember what else, but the thing that I started worrying about is like, oh, what if I change my mind? What if I, what if I get there and, you know, something else is, is you know, this doesn't feel right or what am I going to do? I don't want to change schools. So I, I opted for going to for a big school with a million other things you could do. Um, and Syracuse, you know, was a place where they, they had amazing, they had amazing um, art facilities, sculpture facilities, but they had academic stuff that was um, sound enough too. And then, and I look back and I'm like, but, but nobody told me to think about what part of the country you're going to and what the weather is like. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like hell. It was really, really horrible. You know, that's not why you choose a college, except I look back and like, I, I would give, I would give people the advice to also do consider <laughs> what, it's going to be like when you walk home from class at midnight and, you know, or have to like get in your car and it's like frozen solid and you need like an ice pick to get to the key lock. But anyway, yes, I, I, I went north. But when you work so hard for those little moments of glory and those little like cracks of sunshine, it's so euphoric. <laughs> it's true. I just like my memory is like the sun. I never saw it until like you know, April, it was, just, it was dark the whole time. Maybe it's because I was like studying. I was always inside trying to focus, but I don't remember any sun in that place. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, 
will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. When you landed in Syracuse, other than the weather, did did industrial design kind of always feel like the fit that you thought it would? Yeah, I had an interesting path because it, you know, your first year you do art, you do this core foundational art, which felt really good. Um, and then, but then it was super exciting because my second year, I just felt like the people in my program, they were my people. Like we kind of thought alike, we really hung out together. We spent all of our, you know, social time and our work time together. We worked hard and it felt really good. But then I, I also became really interested in environmental design and I started taking classes in that department. Um, And, you know, when I was getting later in like the design education where I could pick my own project, I, I kept trying to like pick things that weren't what my professors were trying to get me to pick. I wanted to do bigger things. I wanted to do spaces. But and I ended up in my junior year, I in the summer after my junior year, I went with the environmental design department to Italy and I studied there. And that was like really when I look back at college, that was it. Those were like the moments when things really became like, you know, the foundation got built. Although I had this classic industrial design training, like I went to Italy and like 
I had never been there before and was, you know, looking and studying ancient buildings and kind of how like Romans thought about the cities and, and, and how that connected to buildings and, and place. And I love that stuff, but I also think I started developing like my, my love for all things old and, and how things age over time and value in that and all that stuff just became like, and culturally the differences, it just really was foundational. It felt like, okay, now I, I kind of have my feet on the ground and I know I start to know what I really, really like. Well, it's interesting. So that time in Rome, you know, in contrast to growing up near Bell Labs and that environment, it must have it must have really cemented in your head how objects and things assume their place in history and assume their their role in the evolution of humanity and 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 assume that the, the contextual relationship that they'll never be able to be divorced from because they represent so much about the time in which they were created. Yeah. And it was that kind of permanence and that meaning that you connect to things that have been around for a long time and have gone, gone through all these different phases in their life and all these different influences that felt really interesting, really important. And at that point in time, felt like where I was from, there was none of that. You know, I didn't have that perspective about Bell Labs that I do now. Um, it was really like in my younger years where I had those feelings about it and I can look back at them now, but it really was, I kind of went to Italy and went like, oh, nope, this is the way things should be. Is quite opposed to to everything else that I saw. And it's really good to do that. I think about that at that point in your life, you know, really remove yourself from, from everything that you thought the way it was, was and put yourself somewhere, somewhere else. So like just yeah. creatively and culturally, it was super healthy to, to get that. So I went back to school and then I was like, okay, I studied industrial design, but like I ended up doing my thesis and it was like this weird. I took this vacant lot and this was just a concept, I took this vacant lot in Syracuse and I turned it into like, um, like this sculptural playgrounds, architectural concept. And um, that was my thesis, but I liked thinking about those kind of problems and, and even like, you know, the problem of the vacant lot in a, a rundown city was like, I liked the meat of that. So yeah, it was really interesting. So I left kind of, um, you know, I kind of wrapped up the education going like, huh, okay, I studied industrial design, but I, I, I like thinking about things in like a little bit of a different way than like the regular track of that career um, leads you because everybody else wanted to design sports equipment and, you know, like consumer electronics products. Well, speaking of sports equipment, I, I think I read that you got sort of plucked right. from school by Nike. So <laughs> right. understand that. Yeah. So what happened after school is, well, I, I had two job offers before I graduated, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I had one from Nike, they had come out and done some recruiting there. And then I also had an offer from this architecture firm in Baltimore. And so that was definitely more in this, like, you know, designing space and parks. I can't even remember like why they were going to hire me, but they like my portfolio, I guess. Anyway, it was like, okay, there's, there's Baltimore. And then there's like 
Portland. It's west, you know, it's far away and there's like mountains out there and I love mountains. So I went for the mountains <laughs> and they also had like, they had flown me out there and they had like shown me the campus and it was like very design focused. And, you know, I love design any way you slice it. So I was like, okay. And the funny thing was like, you know, my professors at school were totally against it. They were like, this is beneath you, you know, to design footwear. Like you really, really shouldn't go that direction. But in some ways the Nike campus must have echoed of the Bell Labs campus, like, because it was just such a hotbed of generative activity. You know, it did on the inside, but I was there before they even built the campus. So this was like in a, but, but it was, it was super creative. It was like this, these giant, like industrial kind of um, just big industrial buildings and in industrial park. Mm -hmm. And then inside they had built um, giant shoe boxes, like the offices, like Tinker Hatfield was working in a shoe box. Like, and I was working like just outside the shoe box and then like, Mark Parker, who went on to be the the CEO, was like in another shoebox over there, and they were all like these people were really visionary. They were really cool, and they were all working in shoeboxes. Like, how cool is that? So yeah. it was a great experience, and I'm really thankful for kind of going right into that and getting this job that was, you know, very as a designer, you kind of dream of where it, design is central to the organization. It's very supported. It's very integral. You were an important part of it. So that did feel really satisfying. Oh, I bet. I bet. Because at that time, there weren't really that many companies where they were, that were design focused. The landscape of design on the West Coast, to me, through my eyes, was like, there was Nike and there was Apple. And then there was um, all these interesting design consultancies in the Bay Area. And that was it. <laughs> there was like little ones in Portland, like that I got to, you know, there was other things, but the big things were like Apple, Nike, and then these kind of like cool San Francisco consultancies. And that was the world was designed to me. And how long were you at Nike and how did you find Portland? I thought really that was my home forever. I just felt so happy there. And I was there for almost five years oh. and it was, you know, which was a good good stint, I think, for your first job. Like, I got to do so much. I traveled a lot. Um, I loved going to the factories. I loved even getting inspiration for, like, what could they do in the factories? How could that make a design different? And, but, you know, as that, as I went through that process, then I started thinking bigger and, you know, you're going through it and you're like, hmm, like, how does this, like, this disconnection of the factory and the place of a factory in a culture separate from my own, like all that, I really got some good experience looking at and thinking about. And um, I wasn't so sure that that was really the direction the world should go, which was interesting. But so I, I was getting kind of opinionated about that stuff. And I just thought I, I need to do something else. But the biggest lesson that I took away from Nike was this like, I mean, it became really clear, this was a big company, this is a public company. And Public companies' reason for being is really to make money for their shareholders, and that—that's that, you know. And so, when when you get to that wall, that's how decisions are made, and that's the point of it. You can layer on other things, but that was really evident that that that's how 
the world worked with public corporations. And at a certain point, I was like, you know what? That's not really who I want to serve. So I want to try something else. So as it was great, supportive, I'm super thankful for it. But at that point, like I had a pretty clear determination to go, I need to I need to try something different. Connect the dots for me. Did you did you go on then to found One & Co. from Nike or was there something in between? Yeah, it was kind of, there was an in-between. Well, I left Nike and again, like I'm super practical. I was like, I can't leave Nike unless I have an income. So I like, I worked out, like I had a retainer contract with them already. And then I had like, you know, I figured it out where I could move south to San Francisco because that just felt like the sun would be exciting for a while. And I knew people in the Bay Area and I just started consulting. So I already had like a contract with Nike and I just really had the goal of going like, okay, I don't want to be find myself in like a footwear rut mm. and to become known as a footwear only designer. So, you know, I came to San Francisco thinking like, what other kind of things could I do? And my boyfriend at the time worked at Apple, which was cool. Um, although Apple was very different in 1995. Anyway, I did, I did do a job for Apple right off the bat. And then I did like, um, other soft goods, but I quickly figured out that I really didn't want to work solo. And my experience in some ways was limiting it, like open doors to soft goods and footwear. And so I ended up um, partnering up with this designer who I met. His name was Joe Tan. He's just a super, super good designer. He was really young at the time and he did um, consumer products and he came from um, IDEO and we just started working together and that was one and co. So it was my soft goods experience combined with his hard goods experience. And we really thought like that was a nice combination to bring to product design at that time. Like nobody was really thinking about products um, and materials in, in that way. So yeah, one started and and one and co is a design consultancy. So tell me about some of the the major projects you did under the one and co umbrella, you know, there still was a lot of footwear. I, at the time, my dream project was designing snowboard boots. Cause that was, that was where I liked to be was snowboarding. So we took on that and did a lot of their women's snowboarding boots. We did other stuff. And then we were doing like, I don't know, like Logitech projects and, you know, more traditional industrial design kind of consumer electronics stuff. And gosh, that went into even like conceptual stuff for like Microsoft. There was like early cell phone stuff, you know, all kinds of typical Bay Area kind of stuff. But and in your mindset, in your heart, was the goal to just do as much interesting projects as possible? Or were you thinking about scaling this design consultancy into a big? I think I just had, I wanted that goal of like experience in the design world and to really be working with interesting people um, and that was like, that fed me for a little while. And, you know, and then my personal like things like, oh, it'd be great to design a much better snowboard boot and get to snowboard while you're doing that. Like that was a great time, mm -hmm. but then that wore off and it was like, okay, wait, where, where is this going? Do we want to be like, you know, what's different about this consulting firm than any other consulting firm. And th the thing that the, the reality that came into my thinking at that point was like, okay, so now we're doing pretty well. There's like 10 people in this little firm, but 
In order to support that, we really need to have big corporate clients because those are the ones that you can get bigger contracts with and that can pay the bills. And it was like, I couldn't figure it out on how to do something that felt really good. Oh, now you're back serving the shareholders again. That's what I was doing. And it's not that there weren't like good or interesting projects, but it just felt like I did that and I feel that same hole inside me. So what's next? Um, so I, I couldn't figure that out. And I've, you know, there's other people who have done interesting things where they have been able to do more work that feels like it's making the world a better place. But, you know, for me, it was just like the path wasn't there. And the other thing for me personally that that brought up is I realized that, so this firm became a little bit bigger and then I, I really love to design things and solve problems, but the problems I ended up solving were like keeping the business working. Like I'm the one who figured out like what our, hired the bookkeeper and figured out what our finances were and got the contract done and made sure and told everybody like, guys, we need more, like we need to figure out how to get more projects. And then I would get the projects. And then my partners were like, they were incredible designers and they were doing amazing work, but it was like my role all of a sudden became like the glue that held it together instead of like the, the creative person. So it was still this like, how, how am I fitting in here? This isn't really what I want to do, but there's something I'm good at here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I think I have to exit out of this to figure that out. How did you navigate a practical exit? Cause that seems scary to me. Like maybe you left. So I think the way the path went is, so at this point I was together with my now husband. And so we were partners and he kind of had the same feeling. We had that, you know, that kind of bonded us together. It's like, what is it? What, what are we doing with our lives? And, you know, so we were super open. We were out there like looking, what is it? What project, what company, who should, what, what should we do? Um, And, and we were super open and exploring a lot of stuff. And then we had, I wanted to buy a house in Sausalito, with him, that was kind of like my relationship thing is like, look, like I already have this house. And if our relationship is going to progress, like, I don't know, is that practical? What is that? I don't know what that trait is in me. I'm like, no, we need to buy real estate together. (laughs) Like that's commitment or something. It is. I I totally feel that too. (laughs) Seems very unromantic, but it did. That's what we did. So I was like, okay, let's buy, let's buy a house. So we bought this house in Sausalito and then the Heath thing came shortly after that. And it was complete serendipity, but it was like, everything had led up to us looking for something like that. But the, but things like Heath don't exist. So generally. Right. So um, you don't even know that that's what you're looking for because. No. Yeah. But now you've got a partner in crime. You're you're building a life together and looking for your next creative adventure. Well, then like the two of us are always like we're always looking around and we have the similar like I think point of view and like what seems interesting and stuff. So, you know, yeah, the building of Heath that we had. Um, we were talking about this the other night. We're like, what's the real story? Our memories are really fuzzy. Like, were we riding our bikes? Were we at the vet across the street? We don't even remember. But but the thing is, is we had been by this building and it was, it like was drawing us in. There was something really curious about it. It was like this factory. Um, you could tell something was going on. There was a very, very small tile heat sign outside. And, and I took me a while to go, oh, that's like the Heath. That's like the dinnerware that I used to see on eBay. Like it took a while to even collect that. And Robin had never heard of it, but, yeah. 
but we, we checked it out and, um, the, there was a little shop, the same store that we have there today existed, but it was just, there was a lot of more piles of stuff and it was a lot dustier. So, you, so it wasn't as clear as you go in today and like, oh, this is clearly like beautiful mid-century in origin dinnerware. But we went in and um, thought, but this is really interesting. There's this is like, this is amazing. There's like, this stuff is being made in this factory right here in our town. And yeah, I was immediately fascinated. And that brought back my like, there's a factory in my town and I'm a designer. Like there's something here <laughs> for me to do. But as soon as we started talking to them just casually, we realized like there's no, like this is a skeleton crew of people running this. Like they can't do any new design or anything like right now because it's not, um, it's not a solid foundation for this business as a designer. And with my experience in consulting, you're like, you're, you're kind of, you know, if you want to do business with someone, they need to kind of be able to pay you or something. But so, so that was, that was clearly not, not what they needed. They needed something else, but we started chatting with some people working in the store and realized that it, it actually was pretty serious and that needed to find an, a new owner um, immediately. Otherwise the doors would close. It couldn't survive um, as it was. So we like, we're like, really? that's interesting. Um, and so we just kind of went home and got like really fired up and we're like, wow, like maybe, maybe we could figure that out. Someone in the store gave us the number of the woman who was the trustee for the business. And we called her up and it was in contract with someone else. And we're like, Oh, that's a bummer. But she's like, you know what? I, I like, like the conversation that we had, call me back in two days and we called her back in two days and it was like, you know what, that deal isn't happening. Send me your proposal in a week. And so we did that. And it was like one of those things where you're like, well, let's just do the next step. Let's just do the next step. And then we'll see like. Because it just felt right each time. You didn't know what kind of a ginormous leap you were making necessarily. There wasn't any really ginormous leap. It was just like next step, next step. And then it was like, here, Okay here we are, we did this. It's a good memory of just like, no fear, just like make another phone call, just ask another person a question, just get another answer. And then it happened and we were on, okay. So here we, we, you know, got friends and family together to kind of help make the whole thing work. And we're the majority owners of this kind of crazy old, wonderful place, but one that didn't have a um, secure future at that point. And yet we just were like, it's not going to be a problem. We're going to make this work. Wow. And Edith Heath was, was still alive. Was she in good health? Or did she... No, she was not in good health, but she was alive. She was 93 then. Okay. So, and she had a full-time caretaker and she had dementia. So Jay Stewart, who was the woman who we ended up buying the company from and she was a friend a family friend of edith she did the most wonderful job like being like the best possible human to make everything happen and to take such good care of edith but you know edith couldn't you know make any decisions about the business but you know her heart was still there and she came jay had brought her by the factory one time just after we closed and she came through and she said like oh my, you're still making my Heathware. And like she did, 
understand that like her legacy was continuing and it was like you know everybody was just emotional about it and it was yeah, a wonderful- i'm emotional now you must have felt so proud we felt really proud we're like okay we're gonna do this this is her life's work and we're gonna take it and keep that and make it ours and it's gonna be it's gonna happen and there's no other option it's gonna work so i think the transfer of her like you know, her heart and her understanding her legacy was continuing is a pretty, pretty feel good thing. Oh, it's super powerful. And I'm guessing there was still with the skeleton crew, all of her knowledge had been transferred into the crew and therefore could be transferred to you. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't such a tidy place, like with well-organized, like SOPs and notebooks full of documentation. It was a bit of a like, stories had been passed down from the elders kind of <laughs> right this is just like crumbling recipe books and stuff like that oh, oh no kidding yeah and typewriters and you know one computer and accounting so it but you know what it was enough and it was all perfect so that's why like we were able to have it because it wasn't buttoned up and it wasn't clear and it you had to kind of you had to figure it out Nobody could just come along and buy Heath. They'd they'd have to really relish doing that work, dusting off what's really valuable about it, and and also implementing new systems and protocols without losing any of the timelessness or what's valuable about it or the humanity in the brand. Yeah, and- yeah, that was the goal. I mean, that's always what we felt was it and it was like I think the cool thing is Robin and I like we didn't have to really even communicate that to each other like that was instinctual that was the goal that was what was important it needed to be sustainable as a business and nothing else could be compromised and it was just going to work and it had to work that way but you know Robin is really good about getting advice from people who are experts and the experts were telling us it wouldn't work but (laughs) that's always daunting Fuck those experts hard. sometimes. Well, you know, they're like the typical experts. It's all the things we learned is like, you know, we live in the Bay Area. There's like experts on what business is. And we already knew at that point in our life that what everybody thinks businesses is not what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. So like you, they have a lot of knowledge. And, and so there's stuff you're going to learn, but you're not going to just take the um, what people think business successes all around in this area and apply it. So it was like, you know, most people were suggesting, look, like keep your factory open, but find another source somewhere else where you can really rely on like bigger production. And, you know, you can balance it out with some of your kind of quaint production, but you're just not going to be able to make a business work out of that factory solely, you know, which is not like... F- if, if our goal was to like build a big business and sell it, like that was sound advice, but that wasn't our goal. It, that's what, at that point, no time, nobody could really yeah. understand why that wasn't our goal. But, and that well. using that word quaint, like it's a dirty word as well. Like, yeah, it also sort of implies they don't understand the heart because the clay is sourced locally. Right. And there's this tremendous craft tradition there's a lot of craft. There's like when you really dig into the product, there's some very specific things about it that can't be compromised. And I think really make it kind of feel unique and keep it what it is. And so all that is really important. And at the same time, we knew like, look for us just to kind of just to continue um, doing exactly what Edith did in exactly the same way also wasn't super interesting. Like we wanted to, my goal was always like, okay, like 
we want to take that legacy. How do we make another chapter for Heath that's that's creative, legitimate, noteworthy, and is something that the world also should have alongside all of Edith Heath's work. Yes. So tell me, tell me what you guys did. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's been a lot. So it's like 17 years now, yeah. a long time to be working on a project feels like for me. And You bought it in 2003, correct? 2003. Yeah. And in 2004, I registered for Heath pottery for my my wedding my wedding didn't last very long but my heath plates are still in the cabinet well you can rely on those yes <laughs> oh no i mean those stories were something that gave us a lot of confidence because you know what there's people's grandmothers even going like i registered for heath and then like a daughter would come in and register for heath too or a couple would come in and the, they had relatives and like those connections like what kind of product kind of transcends that? It just isn't very common right. that um, it goes through generations and it's still really loved and appreciated. It's been it's been a long journey and it, it's been pretty much all positive. I think we set pretty clear values in the beginning. I think, and we have always stuck to them. You know, we came in there was twenty five people, including us, in two thousand three, and now there's two hundred and thirty, and that's a lot of change in scale in people and 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 the world's different than in 2003 right like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the past five years or so i mean it was like you know we first our e first e-com was like some yahoo store where we sold like 12 SKUs or something like that and now it's a big deal and now we work hard on doing that and we, we opened a new factory in San Francisco in 2012. That was really important to us to, to kind of open a facility that was done in a way that we believe was the right way or the right way for us to manufacture in our own community. And we wanted to create a manufacturing facility that was surrounded by kind of a creative compound, for a better word, of like ourselves and other creative work, give spaces to, to other makers and we have our store in San Francisco. So that was a really big project for us. It's now several years ago, but it, that works out really well. We have a store in Los Angeles. I just want to interject for our listeners to say that I've been there a few times. And I think what you've done there is not only a, a beautiful showroom of Heathware and the other collaborations that you do and, and some other nice products, but it's a celebration of making in the in the heart of the city. It's not relegated to some industrial park um, where space is is affordable. It it sort of says in an unashamed and unabashed way, like this this is our heritage and this is how we make our product, and we want to share this with you, and we want to share it with the creative community. And it feels like an incredibly well, it's it's hip and beautiful, but it also feels like an act of generosity that is coming from the humanity of the brand. That's so lovely how you articulated that. I mean, that's the dream. That was what we hoped. Um, I think there are things that we tried to do that it feels like it does make it a real genuine place for community to happen and creative endeavors to happen. And we do a lot of events, a lot of talks, a lot of them are free. It does feel like a nice connection point. It's tough even seeing what's happened. It's sort of like a Bell Labs, but not as sciencey. It's more of the earth. It's, it's more definitely more of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoa. 
now, Kathy, now that we've opened up your brain and starting to see all of this, that's amazing. Yeah. That was the dream was the, you know, we wanted, we wanted to do that. And it's, it's like, um, yeah, it feels it good. And it is inspiring to have that work. That's also outside of your work that you're doing with your company. Like we do have other people working in the building that aren't Heath. And so it, kind of doing that to us was important, you know, and now it's like the question is like the scale of all these things. Like what more do you scale up so you can do more of that? Or do you, do you not? Do you just kind of go, this is a really wonderful thing. Let's keep it going as is. That's really not an option. but <laughs> Well, right. I mean, you sort of have to keep growing in some direction. That doesn't necessarily it's... mean bigger, but it does mean evolving. And I've yeah, that's exactly the right point. I love how you said that. See, it doesn't mean you have to grow in the direction that everybody thinks you have to grow. So it definitely doesn't mean that. Yeah. And you as a as a problem solver, is this a the type of problem that still has juice and meat to you? Are you still feeling every bit as invested? You know, with One & Co., you described having become the glue that holds it all together. And, and you sound, sound like the glue now, too, but in a different sort of way. Yeah, that's such a good observation because I am in some ways, but not. But I've been working, Rob and I have been working over the past year pretty hard to bring some other people in that we believe have kind of our point of view and think like us, but also have some different experience so that it's not personal. It's not, Heath should no longer be like just our personal vision. And we feel pretty strongly about that because of the scale that it's at. And we really honor the, the incredible jobs that we create and the incredible people that are here. And we want that to continue on. It's really important. So as much as, you know, the two of us might at some point be like, gosh, you know, we'd like to not be at the head of like this larger company. We want it to be successful. So, and successful means maintaining those jobs, maintaining like careers for those people that can continue to grow and never compromising on the values. So, so that's the problem to solve. It's not just my problem to solve anymore. It's a very collaborative kind of group that we have with really cool other experiences that they're bringing, they're bringing in. And there's nothing that feels better than that, that knowing, okay, it's not, it's not just, you know, Robin and I and our, our limited personal experience kind of, that's going to help it adapt for the next phase. And there's always a next phase, right? You've always got to be doing that. That's exciting. So in answer your question, like I do want to be a part of it, but I don't want it to be just totally personal. And I do want to also have other projects that I work on. And so, you know, for a long time, I've been 150% Heath. Like I feel like I am Heath. And, you know, at this point, I feel, I feel like I'm in it. I'm a part of it. I want to contribute significantly, but I also have some other things I want to be able to check, check out and, and focus on as well. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that. And it sounds like a really healthy perspective because I'm just thinking about the first chapter of Heath. It didn't have a succession plan. And as Edith's health started to fail, you know, I don't know if it was a direct mirror, but the the company also couldn't sustain itself without new stewards, you, you and Robin, to, to come on and really value what was built there and, and help it adapt to a new world. 
Yeah, I think you completely hit the nail on the head that and we and we could see that. And it was sad because for Edith and Brian, it was completely personal and they were so attached to it that they couldn't let it go. They couldn't let anybody's ideas come in and they couldn't let as the landscape changed and the world changed, they couldn't see that. And you can see as you get older where that becomes different. You know, your experience can sometimes cloud a path forward um, instead of enable it. So getting different perspectives in and making sure it's not personal is super integral to it. And yet I still believe, I mean, it is personal. It's always personal. There's no like, but it's not wholly surrounding just my personal view. It sort of reminds me of, and I don't have kids, so maybe this is going to sound corny, but it sounds sort of like raising a child and then recognizing that child has to go to college and you're always going to be the parent, but now the world is taking a much more active role in raising your child. That's it. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. And you, you still are, you're still always the parent. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's the, a lovely way to kind of articulate. Yeah. Next phase. So in terms of your own creative process, your your love for Heath and your integrity with regard to its stewardship and, you know, evolution is super apparent. But what about Kathy personally? You, you sort of mentioned having other creative pursuits and wanting to keep yourself not so insulated in the Heath world that you do, you can't bring fresh perspective. So how do you keep yourself active and fuel, fueled with new experiences? Yeah, it's pretty... It seems pretty important to me at this point in my life because you could still like see how you can get sucked in and this can be my life and that and there's another thing and this is really personal about it but I'm like a tragic introvert like really hardcore it's just who I am and I know I can't change it as the scale of the business has gotten bigger and to do it well, it really needs this kind of leadership that is very, that takes my energy in a really intense way. You know, like I walk around and I don't know everybody working here anymore. And that thought creates so much anxiety in my daily life, like that experience, right? So there's all this introverted stuff that I have to like deal with. My happy place is kind of like working with a very small group of people. I love collaborating, but um, so I need to structure those kind of projects for myself. And like outside of Heath, you know, we've also built over the past few years, this rhythm into our life where we go away for two months in the summer. That gives perspective to everything. I always like thought back, like after, you know, we had never taken more than two weeks off for like, you know, a decade. And then it was also because my son was getting older and I was like, okay, it's now or never like, because he's not getting, he's, he does not getting younger. None of us get younger, but that time really um, that you can take to, to look inward. And it was, it, it's been really important. I draw a lot. I, I paint during that time. And then 
then when I get home, I realize what those kind of things give me and I need to keep them going. And I get to read a lot. Oh, oh, that, that two months, we travel, we road trip for two months. Oh, I love road trips. Personally, it's been like that distance from it to make sure that it's not consuming me. And then it's given me other directions that when I get back, I pursue. You know, I have ideas, I have projects that um, have all like incubated on that time away and it's funny because that time away is like an introvert's like heaven like we're out there we go we go to Alaska or all the way up like to the Yukon and there are only bears and like (laughs) moose and stuff and yeah it feels really it puts your head in a different place and then when I think about the stories I was telling you of me growing up I mean can you imagine I never even fantasized I could do that to be at those places in the world that are so immensely beautiful. Yeah, it yeah. feeds me. And then as a as a tragic in, introvert in your words, does that time away also allow <laughs> you negative? Well, I mean, I feel you because you have to do obviously you have to foster a culture at Heath and keep people motivated and invested and there's a there's a charismatic output that has to come from that and you know not all creative people can fathom all the tolls that like their creations will be exacted from them. So you and Robin built this amazing entity and now it takes a toll from you in terms of your introversion that maybe you didn't anticipate or now you have to manage with self-care and. Yep. I didn't anticipate it. I didn't, I didn't think about it. I think I've become more aware of, I've become much more aware of it by taking time away and then like just really kind of looking inside and going like, who am I? Where, where do I feel like I get energy from and what takes it from me? And, and then you realize like who I am and the role that like Heath needs someone to fill right now that I filled in the past, like that's not ideal for me. So I have to carve out my own role. That's going to be, um, different so that I can contribute and kind of lead in my own way. But like everybody isn't dependent on my charismatic leadership because that's not who I am. That sounds like a a pretty important discovery to make about yourself and maybe one that starts off with a lot of resistance. Well, it starts off with a lot of guilt, right? Because you're like, why can't I just get over it? And you're like, yes, you could do that, but it doesn't put you, you know, your mental health in a very good place and probably like, just like it will destroy you. So that became apparent to me that like, no, and I, why, why should I need to do that? And there's so many, we have incredible people here that I work with now that that is who they are. And so they can flourish as well. And it doesn't mean I can't be integral, but the roles can shift and And the cool thing is, it's like, who's stopping us? Like, we can do it however we want. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of of how you evolved Heath in the the second chapter, is that you you don't have to be what everybody thinks you should be. You can be whatever suits what the raw material is asking. Yeah. Yeah, you do have to talk about it a lot because people still think. Yeah. Yeah, As an introvert, I bet that wears on your nerves. (laughs) Yeah, you got to do the work. So from discovering industrial design at 16, which sounds kind of like a dream and also a little bit scary because you want to make sure you're exploring your options. But through Nike to One & Co to Heath, your life sounds or it can look pretty charmed from this vantage point. But I know that's not a 
super fair and accurate depiction of anybody's life. Can Are you willing to share with us like maybe a disappointment that you've lived through and learned from? I do feel like, you know, the thing we were just talking about, you know, who I am and trying to learn from that, because I feel like I have let people down and in, in, in the past, you know, just kind of not even realizing like who I am and what my nature is and I get misinterpreted. So there's that kind of stuff that I've learned from. And so, you know, that's always disappointing when you realize later in life, like, oh, like that, how I was acting or something wasn't how I really wanted to be taken. So there's that personal stuff, but I don't have much regret. And I don't know if this is like being an introvert, but like the people stuff at work is really, really hard when it doesn't go as you hope it will, when things just don't work out, you know, and like nothing is just business. There's nothing I hate more than when people are like, hey, well, it, I had to make that decision. You know, it's just business. Like that's bullshit because it, people are real and they're humans and they have feelings and you, all that is is has to be considered. But I think I have learned Rob and I have both learned and we're much better about how to communicate um, through things that, you know, when there's employee issues, when companies needs are changing, when people's performance is not merging with things that need to happen from a company perspective and wrap in like real humanness into that. Like we've gotten really good at that, but I, there, there are a lot of situations in the past where I wish I knew how to handle them. It's hard. It's just hard for people and you don't want to make things hard. What I'm hearing from you is somebody who's, for better or worse, a compassionate and empathetic leader. And so you feel the anguish of others in addition to your own anguish when things aren't working out well. It's exactly right. And plus, I've just learned a lot about how you can work through those things. It's, anyway, those are the things I've learned is there are ways to kind of feel better uh, and do do better. There's ways to communicate that I didn't know in the past. <laughs> didn't th- You know, you just kind of think, well, you can't just say it. And you're like, no, no, you can actually. Yeah, that <laughs> radical candor idea. Is that something that you've learned? I think it's it's somewhat that, but it's also um, communicating in the moment. It's really like letting people, giving a lot of feedback all along the way. So you're kind of always course correcting. And generally, like you're able to get people like on track better. So, but also, you know, if, if you're doing this course correcting, like it becomes apparent, like it's not like a yearly thing that you bring up or you assess a project like after it's done. It's just like, it's a culture. And we've, we've worked, we're working really hard on, on that culture. And it's not like naturally who like Robin and I are. That's why, you know, we kind of had to, had to learn it. And um, to run a company, that's a company we want to have and that we feel proud of. Because when it was, when it was really small, I mean, those situations were, well, not that we were good at them, but they weren't as impactful as when the culture becomes one that's just not as transparent and the feedback is not, you know, done in a way that everybody feels like they know what's going on. They know where we're going. I mean, this is funny. This is a tangent, but the biggest, the biggest lesson at all, uh, the biggest lesson in any of this and in life is like, if you know where you want to go, like you have to tell everybody Mm -hmm. and everybody knows where you're going. Generally, they will like help you get there. 
and all the problems start happening, just like in your personal life and everything. And and if, um, and if people don't want to go where you're going, then often they usually figure out like, Oh, I I don't want to go there. I better like get off the bus. (laughs) And that's like, so, so huge for like running a business and even like creative stuff too. Like if you're not going like, you know, the same creative destination, like why are you working together? (laughs) Like, you mentioned road trips. What does the road ahead look like for you personally? Well, you know, we did get into some of that, whereas I've hired a couple um, new people. It's been about a year or so that I've been working on that. So personally, my role at Heath is going to change, and I hope it can be more creative and less like leading everything. And I'm doing like my goal is to not have what happened at one where it was like, okay, I'm the glue. So now I have to just exit. So I don't want to do that. I want to kind of form my role where I can really be who I am and help guide the brand and do creative projects, but not be the glue that holds everything together. So that's my personal path at Heath. But then I have, you know, I have some other projects that I'm working on and some of them like mundane as this sounds, it's been really Um, fulfilling to me is I've spent the last year and a half training doing leather work, like hand, traditional hand leather work, right? Like it's a skill, not designing the stuff, but actually just doing the craft. Like you sit there and hand stitch for hours and you have to stitch for like days and days and days until your hand stitching is at all like tolerable and then to make it really beautiful it's but it's it's like intense labor right so personally I enjoy I want I want craft skills I want more of those to be like in me and then like and I want those to come together with design and I don't want that to be like commercialized so so I'm working on some stuff like that and then I have another like more of a um kind of environment project that I'm working on as well. Like, but which, you know, probably connects to Heath in some way, but I'm trying to approach like some of these projects like outside Heath so that they're not like, they're not, the goal is not for it to become commercial. The goal is to keep it creatively clear. And then, yeah, if it ties together, awesome. And if it doesn't, and it's just personally fulfilling, that's great. Do you have a project in the works, either Kathy Bailey or Heath, that you want to tell our listeners about that they can follow along? I just have those seeds that, yeah, they're too much seeds right now to kind of like spell out. Yeah, there's this one that's that's about gathering an environment. And I think that it still needs to kind of it's it still needs to gel before it, um, it needs to bake, bake okay. up a little bit. <laughs> we'll let the dough rise. Then we'll... The dough needs to rise. Yeah, the yeast needs to be just right to get it to the right point. Okay, well, we'll be following along anyway so that when the bread comes out of the oven, we're there cheering you on. This, Thank you. This has been really nice, Kathy. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, know, you for chatting. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Kathy's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help us out. Please also check out our sponsors' offers and support us by supporting them. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. 
Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.